Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. What's up, guys? Ben Keedy here with the Wealth Crypto Podcast again and have another great episode for you. This one is with Jordy Weiser. He is the president and chief investment officer at Weiss MultiStrategy. And essentially, Weiss MultiStrategy is one of the first market neutral hedge funds out there. Uh, They've been doing it a very long time. They consult with a broad array of institutional clients. But uh, Jordy has a fantastic perspective, really from a macro side, on just markets in general, where crypto's going, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So hope you enjoy. Thanks. And we're live. Jordy, what's up? How you doing, Ben? Good, good, good. Thanks uh, Thanks for joining me today. Maybe for the listeners, let's just start off with you know who you are, what you do, and then we can jump into it. <laughs> All right. I'm... Uh... Let's see. Gordy. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Uh no, I'm uh I'm currently the president and CIO of a uh a four billion dollar hedge fund, Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors. Um the fund is basically focused on uh long sharp, long short market neutral. It's been around since the 70s, believe it or not. So it's one of the older uh, hedge funds uh established by uh, George Weiss, who's still in the office three days a week or so. So kind of a family office, not not a lot of press, but uh, been around a long time. And I've been the president and CIO since uh, just after the great financial crisis. Before that, I started my career at Morgan Stanley. Um, so I've been in the um, in the markets really since 1992. And Morgan Stanley is predominantly in derivatives and specifically emerging markets. I moved to Brazil in 1997, opened the office for the firm there and was there for two years, came back. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, Brazil's great. One of uh, one of my good buddies is from Rio and I got down there. This was seven, eight years ago now, but Rio's a blast. Yeah, Rio Rio is fun. I had my uh, my wife and, and daughter there. Um, I would say it was a little bit less a little different. Free. Yeah, was, yeah, and, yeah. And I, I was uh, I was I was twenty four, so we were probably doing <laughs> doing different things. Yeah, when you're when you're twenty four without kids, um, <laughs> yeah, you're still immortal and you're a superhero. When you, when sure. you have a kid, you're a little bit more uh, looking. <laughs> so yeah. I was there during uh, the chaos in there, and I moved back to the US, took over the S&P book and ran the ETF business for Morgan Stanley. And then I left and started uh, on the ma- uh, my own macro hedge fund. I rolled that team into Weiss, and I've been with Weiss since uh, 2005. Okay, great. Well, that's a, that's a hell of a resume, for sure. Let's <laughs> um, uh, a lot of stuff. Yeah, so let's maybe just kind of jump into it. What we were talking about before we hit record about, um, you know, you thinking that we're at the top of fiat assets. Maybe unpack that thought a little bit, and then we can uh, sort of peel that back. Okay, and let let me just so people understand why I would even be uh, talking about fiat assets. So I spend most of my time with pension funds and insurance companies and the largest investors in the world talking about asset allocation and mm-hmm. 
there's been a massive change in the world really in in the last 20 years uh and i think everyone's kind of aware of it but just so your listeners kind of hear it from someone who who watches it the the benchmark of the world for pension funds uh, for the equity portion of fiat assets so when i say fiat assets we're dealing with bonds stocks and real estate and the total sum of those make up about 450 to 500 trillion dollars across the globe and pretty much every year you get this upward movement in those numbers they grow every year and whatever you want to guess it as 7 to 10%. But since 2006 MSCI World which is the benchmark for most big investors around the globe MSCI World has gone higher by a significant amount but MSCI World X the United States is unchanged since 2006. So believe it or not if you own stocks anywhere outside the US you're basically break even since 2006. And you can imagine if that was the case in the US, we'd be getting a lot more press on people worried about things. For sure. Uh, and the reason our stock market's gone up so much is because we've dominated the web 2.0 world and tech and the mega cap tech names have dominated uh, the investment side. And so it's not just every individual in the US who listens to your podcast who has a single dollar in the stock market. They all own usually the S and P five hundred as as sure. part of their their retirement. Well, that's predominantly the mega cap tech names. They make up about twenty five percent of almost everyone's portfolio. And what's happened this year is, in my opinion, we've had a big shift where, for the first time since before two thousand six, we've got investment grade yields higher than the earnings yield on the S and P, which means people now can get paid more in bonds yeah. than the implicit earnings yield in the S and P. But probably most importantly, and the major trigger point for why fiat assets to me are are peaking, you've got a very very important scenario that the risk free rate is now five plus percent. Sure. And and it comes at a time when the demographics are skewed much, much more towards older people. Um, and so you've got that dynamic, which has been a dramatic shift. And, you know, I can go into more, but I'll give you a chance just to at least to respond to that. So I do think the bond market, which is best measured by the Barclays Ag uh, for pension funds, again, that is unchanged, believe it or not, now since 2011. So we've had a bear market in bonds that began when the Fed started raising rates. Global yeah. bond markets now have returned nothing including the coupons since 2011. Stock markets ex the US have done nothing. Commodities, the total return of the Bloomberg Commodity Index is unchanged now since 2004. So aside from US tech stocks and the private marketplace, venture capital, things like that, it's been really hard to make any money. And now with real estate peaked and with the venture capital world, in my opinion, peaked, we've entered a point where the risk-free rate looks pretty attractive at 5.5%. Got to go get those uh, T bills right now. They're, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're made. They're, they're, uh, they're selling a lot of them. Um, <laughs> yes, there's a lot to kind of pick at there. Um, where do I want to start? So, you said from this institutional kind of consulting perspective, um, talking to all the smartest people in the room type thing. What? And, and before we started recording, you said this necess necessarily doesn't necessarily mean it's a bleak outlook, even though it kind of sounds that way, right? Like with things peaking, like generally at the peak, you go down, right? Generally is the thinking. So where where 
does this leave us? Like, is this like rot in the system that we're not growing? Or is this like some unseen tech deflationary thing happening? Like you mentioned demographics. How does that play into it? Like when you try to crystal ball the future, where where do you go? Because you got to allocate the money somewhere, right? Well, let's give everyone a little bit of 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 a history of kind of the way that the fiat world works and gdp goes um and I'll, I'll feed this into japan because for for people have you been to japan i have not i really want to go okay. snowboarding out there right, <laughs> that's good well then, that's a big trip for me this will give you something to think about so basically there's three components of gdp in terms of what has grown it and how it grows because if you think about it you're talking about growth you need more expenditures every year yeah. Well, the first thing is, if the population's growing, meaning there's more people to spend, you get higher growth. We've had to use debt. So debt's been growing consistently. And that's why people, a lot of doom and gloomers and gold bugs talk about how this is going to end badly. Uh, we've had debt growth. Well, we're at the point now that debt growth, as far as I'm concerned, is done. The The people of the country don't want it anymore. And we've gotten to the point after the pandemic where it's become obvious that neither party wants to grow debt the way that it has. So every time we have a debt ceiling conversation, we might rise it or raise it, but most of that is now going to be the interest payments that we have to make on it. So we've reached a point where we're not going to get any growth from that. Yeah. Population growth is peaking um, and demographic or not demographics, immigration was really a big part of increasing it. And even though we've got uh, millions of people entering the country illegally or through the borders. Whole another conversation. <laughs> Yeah, and I yeah. Like, both parties are now focused on that. Um, you need productivity. So the first part to your question is, I am a big believer in artificial intelligence. I uh, use it as part of my job already, three to five hours a day. And oh that's wow, okay. So whether it's writing, whether it's doing analysis on the markets, I use yeah. ChatGPT, Claude in particular, and we have a major project going on at the firm. Uh, with a consulting group as well. So artificial intelligence is at a major inflection point. And I wrote a paper this year on the Bitcoin moment called the Bitcoin moment. And it was really because of two factors, which are really important to this whole concept of why GDP has reached a point that it's not going to grow anymore. Number one was the belief that artificial intelligence is going to force a greater need for authenticity which is obviously a major part of the crypto world and the blockchain. So you're going to see a rise in needing more. So we've broken trust because as we go into an election next year, the amount of, you're not going to know what you're reading, where it's coming oh, from. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's amazing. The, the deep fakes are already incredible. I mean, even the fun ones, like, you know, Drake's uh, AI song that like pumps yeah. the, the top of, you know, the charts. Like, it's great, but kind of problematic it's not it's not going to stop it's only going to accelerate yeah. From, yeah. from going through it and then the second thing was silicon valley bank and for everyone who's listening that kind of gotten really negative over it silicon valley bank normally would have created a recession in the country but the fed has tools post the great financial crisis which allow them to intervene in these scenarios and not stop growth from slowing or stop from a bank going under, but they can stop the contagion from it spreading to other places by taking those assets and holding them until the market clears. And both of those, AI and SVB, 
those are major trust issues. And so far from the peak, bank deposits are down about $900, million, uh, $900 billion. You've never seen deposits go out like this in the history of the country. M2 was down last year. It's down again this year. M2 matters for GDP and for growth. And I don't yeah. see a scenario that it's not going to keep going down. And the reason is because people are moving money into money market accounts, which are not the same as the banks being able to lend. So the banking yeah. system is losing their assets. And this is why I called it the, the Bitcoin moment. And one of the reasons why when you think about fiat assets peaking, if AI picks up and allows for more productivity growth, which is the third arm of GDP, we can still be growing okay at the same time that the money is being funneled looking for assets that have a greater return than the Fed funds rate by at least two times. And that's the problem for stocks and bonds. I don't think they're going to be able to produce the, the returns necessary for the risk that they bring, where crypto and the Bitcoin and Bitcoin, I think, will continue to get more assets. And you have to think of it as leaving the fiat world crossing the bridge, the bridge will be the ETF. That will allow a lot of investors, especially on my side, institutional investors who've been skeptical of investing, particularly after things like FDX, they want to have something that's a little bit more traditional for them. And I think once that starts, it'll go. And I'll finish it up this way, Ben, with the Japan scenario. Japan's stock market is unchanged since before I got into markets, meaning it's still the same level it was, believe it or not, in 1989. When you go visit Japan, what you will see is a country that is the uh, the most organized country on the planet. Somehow or another, with no growth, economic growth, and no stock market growth, everything functions there much better than it does in the United States. Um, everything. I'm not kidding you. Traffic, trains, everything. The airport uh, bathrooms are are spotless. It is a, an amazing place. And so this whole concept that we need growth is not going to is not going to be something that's going to become relevant. It'll take a little while, but I think we're at that stage right now. Wow. Interesting. I don't even know where to go from there. Um, I, I'd heard one thing. I, here's one thing, kind of a sidebar, that I'd heard about Japan or, well, saw online. So take it for that. But I'd heard that like little kids can roll around Japan and the culture values them so much that there's minimal risk to them just kind of wandering off and just being a kid. I don't know if you can speak to that at all, but. Let's just put it this way. When I lived in Brazil, I had to keep three eyes open at all times. Yeah. yeah. To know what was going. I had to dress like I had zero money and yeah. I was local. Um, yeah. And I'm not kidding. I drove, I drove around a Volkswagen rabbit effectively. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I tried to stay low in Japan. You feel completely safe. Um, it's an, it, again, it's an unbelievable place. The only reason we're bringing it up in here is because their stock market hasn't gone up now for over 30 years. Yeah. And their economy was basically flat. Their bond market has had zero interest rates. You're talking about something which is amazing that has occurred. And I think in this country, it would be a hard thing for people to accept that they weren't making money in their, in their, um, their bank, in their, uh, in the stock market. Yeah, but with yields at five and a half percent and unemployment at all time lows, you have a very unique situation that anyone can get a job and they can put their money in the bank. Uh, and I think we're headed towards a very similar situation like Japan. It might take another fifteen years, but I think we're headed that direction. So, with all that laid out, what are like implications, right? So you you kind of touched on the crypto moment, right, with your paper. Um, how do you view that? Like with 
maybe I don't know what you would call it. No growth, sustain sustainable growth, whatever you want to call it. Like what what does that actually mean practically? Well, so I brought up the numbers um, initially, which is think of the fiat the fiat economy having assets of five hundred trillion. Yeah, the crypto world. You know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt of the rally we've seen, and just say right now it's a trillion and a half dollars. So you've got this one pie that is five hundred trillion that is owned by older people that don't believe in crypto and sure. believe in things like Picassos and um, you know big yeah. houses and all these things that the younger demographics of the world don't subscribe to. Sure. Uh, and so what I see happening is there's another economy, and because of the greed of human beings, they're going to invest in Bitcoin. So as of right now, the majority of people have not invested in, in Bitcoin, especially in, in the US. But let's go through what happened last year during a bear market for crypto. There were an increase of 100 plus million wallets last year during a bear market. So you went from 300 million to approximately 420 million wallets. Asia is responsible for 260 million of the 400 million or 420 million. Interesting. The US is not the US is not dominating uh this world. We no. may have more money, but we've been the least users and I would say the predominant users of Bitcoin over here have been wealthy people, whether it's been Silicon Valley wealthy people, whether it's been hedge fund wealthy people, it doesn't really matter. They were the initial kind of run into this, but their problem is it's the only liquid thing they have right now which is still working because a lot of the Silicon Valley startups and, you know, private companies, they're down 70 to 90% yeah, and there's really no liquidity. We've seen IPOs in the market not trade well, and I think that market is is done. I, I personally believe the VC world is not going to get another cycle. The way I've termed this is, and this okay. is kind of the moment is, there's no more business cycles in the United States. I don't believe in them anymore. They bail people out. I think rates are going to stay up at five and a half percent because I think the economy is going to be Japan like. It'll be okay. Inflation will be slightly higher, but with that kind of world, crypto is going to be very attractive. And next year, because of the election uh, and what's happening with two wars going on, I really do believe that crypto will continue to have a um, a bid to it, uh, where you're finally going to see real money start going into it because you're starting to get more people understanding more about it, and they're starting to realize that stocks have been as volatile as crypto, and that's a very good thing. When you think about crypto. How do you think about its value? Like, obviously, you're kind of separating out. I would assume you're separating out Bitcoin relative to layer ones, layer twos, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my simple way of thinking about it, I, I view Bitcoin as the one and only true real hard asset as far as digital assets go. And then the rest I kind of view as like software, right? You know, layer ones, layer twos are infrastructure. People build on them you know, AWS for Web3 type thing. Like, how do you, what, and I guess maybe a second layer to that question that you kind of touched on is like older people currently control the majority of wealth. But as you know, the wealth transfer is happening. Boomers are dying. Money's getting passed on. And it sounded like you're making a demographic argument that as soon as this younger, call it maybe young millennial like me, potentially to below as soon as 
that group of people gets a hold, they're going to be a lot more inclined to invest in digital assets rather than, you know, a Van Gogh or a Ferrari or real estate or whatever. So how do you how do you kind of, you know, yeah. open that up, I guess? Now, that's a that's a good question. And I think the fact that you're speaking, it's literally like for for people that have uh, invested. And I'm, I'm speaking again about pension funds or any older person that's made money. Um, to them, they're comfortable buying a piece of art, even though when I say, well, a 3D printer and nanotechnology and artificial intelligence can completely replicate a Picasso. So there's a million of them. You're getting the same view of it. Unless it's authenticated, how do you actually know what it is? And this is kind yeah. of what's going to happen with technology. I mean, we've done this. You already mentioned the Drake situation. Like, you can copy anything, and people yeah. can't tell what it is. <laughs> yeah. So Christie's and, and Sotheby's are going to have to go through the authentication. Uh, authentication. I always joke that um, the, the most expensive painting in the world ever sold was a Leonardo da Vinci that sold for $10,000 in New Orleans about 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, if you haven't if you haven't seen the documentary, this will, you know, give people a chance to realize that the most expensive art piece of art in the fiat world, no one has any idea if it's really a Leonardo da Vinci. They had a couple people analyze it, they went through and they said, "Yeah, we think it's a da Vinci based on this," but they have no proof. And that's I mean there's a documentary called The Lost Leonardo which oh, everyone okay. should watch because it's a good yeah. it's a good kind of way to 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 think about the the fiat world. But directly to your answer on this, this confusing part for people on what do I invest in? What I I need there to be companies. I'm a macro person. So I when I talk about the stock markets, I talk about the S&P 500. To me, that is you're an established com uh, com company. You you're solid. You're you're you've been around a long time, and that to me is my Bitcoin. So the S and P yeah. 500 is Bitcoin. The Nasdaq is where you're getting a lot more of the technology and where things are coming up. And that would be, as you're saying, for the layer ones and layer twos. I think those are more outside of my wheelhouse. I really don't care about trying to analyze whether Ethereum or Solana or go through all of the ones that my son knows yeah. even deeper in the weeds. Yeah, um, I just know that this ecosystem is very similar to the one I'm familiar with. But instead of these token, instead of companies, you have tokens. Mm -hmm. it's the reason they're the exact same thing to me is what is Apple? It started as an idea, two people in a garage ideas are innovation and human beings have ideas they come up they want to have a company i just don't think we're going to have these i think you're going to have localized communities more and more going forward and that represents more of 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 bitcoin and i think scenarios like the most famous community in the world right now are the swifties um and that community in taylor <laughs> swift is very similar to me to the crypt. I wrote a paper on Taylor yeah. Swift this year. Um, I love that. And I, and I think there's going to be more of this going forward. So I think people are going to get more comfortable with, quote unquote, Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum, Solana for speculation. They're going to get more involved in it. But I definitely think Bitcoin will remain. You can call it the OG, but I'll just call it the S&P 500. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um and you touched earlier on how, you know, a spot ETF would be the preferred sort of access vehicle for a lot of the clients that you work with. Um, why, I guess, why, why, I mean, in my head, I kind of understand at a high level, yeah, sure, I get an ETF's easy, right? Buy, sell, done, you know, uh, on an exchange, I get it. But if you're, you know, a large firm, like crypto's matured, 
there's plenty of you know consultants and solutions out there for institutional custody and risk and performance and all that sort of stuff now why not just own it outright like why why just buy the etf i guess so if 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 you met someone who was in their 60s and they sure. asked sure. how do i go buy it yeah like it's not i get it but it's not that hard you know if you're like calpers or something like you've got the people there to go buy it like doesn't I have to, it doesn't have to be the board member it could be a 29 year old cfa i i think you might be minimizing the impact that ftx had on and all of the exchanges in terms of what went on i i yeah. you know here, here's the best analogy i can give you um so we fly on planes all the time that are flown by computers. Yeah. And there's people up there. If if a car came right now and there was a driver, but the driver was driving it autonomously and you didn't know, you feel secure. Once you don't have the driver there, you're panicked, even if we know that it's safer. I just yeah. think the ETF is a language that people in the fiat world understand better. Sure. I think it makes them more comfortable. And the, one of the things, and I, I included this in my paper, um, by the way, I'm referencing a lot of stuff. If people go to our website, which is gweiss.com, a lot of the papers I've written, I've written a, a couple papers on, on crypto, but this story in particular, Morningstar last year, which is really the, I'd say the major benchmark for the mutual fund industry in terms of mm -hmm. rating things, they wrote a paper on if you included just 1%, in a 60-40 portfolio, with 60 being fixed income, 40 being equity, if you took 1% uh, in Bitcoin out of the equity bucket, so now you'd have 60 fixed income, 39 equity, 1 Bitcoin, over the last 10 years, your return went from 7 point something percent to 13.3 with just 1%. It worked over every single period, three years, five years, 10 years. And last year, you only would have been down during a year that Bitcoin was hit hard an extra 20 basis points. So instead of being down 8.7%, you would have been down 8.9%. The, the, there's two parts of that. One is it opened a lot of eyes for people. I remember when I sent it out, we have a mutual fund. A lot of people called up and wanted to talk more about that. Secondly, they started asking how they could invest in it. And it yeah. wasn't an easy thing because a lot of them can. I think the ETF is going to open it up. And the thing I compare it to is Kathy Wood's ETF, which was the innovation ETF. Yeah. It was very correlated to Bitcoin, but now all of a sudden, Bitcoin is at the highs of the year. And as of last week, Kathy yeah. Wood's ETF was near the lows of the year. We're starting to break the correlation between these innovation fiat stocks and the crypto market. And I think that's a very, very bullish sign that is going to lead to very, very strong returns over the next 12 months. Yeah. Do So this has popped up over the podcast as, as it relates to the spot ETF. Do you kind of... Do you, I guess, do you have a view on major Wall Street players coming in and acquiring so much spot Bitcoin? Um, I, I kind of see a trade off here. Like you're going to have this massive price signal from, you know, pensions, endowments, sovereign wealth, buying the spot asset through iShares or whatever, right? Yep. The flip side of that, though, is that somebody's got to own that, right? And is it, you know, is it like a cash? <laughs> Like a, a weird catch and kill scenario of like, you know, several major global financial firms acquiring, I don't even know how much, 
60, 70% of Bitcoin supply? Like, is there, I mean, it, it's like, it's for everything, you know, it's the S&P, it's for gold, it's for oil. Like, do you kind of, does that thought occur to you? Is that something that you? Yeah, I, I remember, I so I mentioned at the beginning, I ran the ETF business at Morgan Stanley during, during the heyday of when it really took off. And this was in the late 90s. So I watched as it wasn't QQQ then, it was QQQQ. Yeah. Uh, there were four Qs, but um, people didn't think that would ever make it. And why would a mutual fund buy it or what would go on? And I remember uh, the person who ran the the equity uh, sales, the, the sales part of the equity division when I came back um, from Brazil, Shell Johnson said to me, there's only going to be two things. There'll be ETFs and hedge funds because the mutual fund industry is going to have a hard time competing. And to some degree, he was right. You've seen mutual yeah. fund assets go down dramatically and ETF assets have gone up. So because that's happened, that means every time someone comes in to buy SPY or QQQ, yes, there's a bank that's buying all the underlying stocks against it. And so this goes on in every market. You have it for corporate credit, you have it for gold, you have it for oil, you have it for all of these things. So at this point, um, there will be people that go. And one thing about it, so people understand, the reason I think this is such an important thing is I'm talking not just to pension funds, but to big to big um, RIAs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wealth people, they want to be in it. Um, okay. A lot of them won't allow it. I was at a conference yeah. this year where UBS yeah. said, we're never going to recommend it to clients. And I'm like, yes, you will. Yeah. Second year <laughs> clients want it. And yeah, you're, like you're going <laughs> to get it. So uh, I think it's going to happen um, as these models say they're going to put 1% in. And I think that's what's going to happen very quickly is the model portfolios that existed, all these RIAs, where a strategist puts in a certain view, I think they're going to do what Morningstar said. And I think they're going to increase the allocation very much when the ETF starts. And I think once that starts, there's going to be a lot of dollars that are flowing in into a market, but there's really no liquidity on the sell side. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how uh, how much of the libertarian OG crypto aspect of Bitcoin plays into its value for you? Like, you, we were kind of talking about Japan, um, you know, demographics and all that sort of stuff and the U.S. potentially being there. I personally just can't get out of the way of how much money we're spending. Like, I don't know if you think that it matters, like at some point, when and where does 34 trillion ish dollars matter? Right. Um, my view is that, you know, Bitcoin is a money is a super hard asset. You got 21 million. That's it. You know, and you know, people are going to chase this thing as soon as the ETF happens. You know, I, I was actually talking to a guy in RA today, a big one, big national $20, $30 billion firm. They don't allow, you know, digital assets currently. It's like, well, you're missing your accumulation phase right now. Like, because when it happens, it'll happen super fast. And if you guys aren't ready for it, like, you know, who knows? But I guess that's a super long-winded kind of way of like, you know, how do you think about, you know, global debt, demographics? Is it a consistent, strong signal for Bitcoin, particularly if nobody is selling, you know? Um, thoughts? So here, here, here's the way I, so the the fiat system is a Ponzi scheme. And I, again, I, I don't want to sound, because I'm not one of these people that believes this will end badly. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, and again, Japan didn't end badly. 
Um, yeah. The reason their stock market is unchanged, the reason they don't have any growth is because they don't have any more population growth. Their population peaked. So sure. this is kind of a thing. And people have been worried about the Japanese bond market since I got into the business. So since 1994, it's been called the widow maker to short Japanese bonds. You can go read every macro yeah. textbook. Um, it's not been a popular trade. And I, I <laughs> Every macro guy can, can take you through the amount of dollars they lost trying to predict when Japan would blow up. So yeah. I, I view the U.S. as, as being being in a, a, a similar situation. But I will say that your point towards how can this thing keep going, we're, de- we're going to be going through a scenario where Bitcoin has gone up dramatically. That Morningstar point and the argument that is true, we're watching the fiat assets base like they're losing their value relative to this other world so the reason i keep saying 500 trillion if 20 years from now that 500 trillion is only 425 trillion meaning the stock markets don't produce anything the bond market doesn't produce anything and we're basically paying off the debt with some of those assets which is what happens well then what you're left with is maybe the fiat world is now I don't know, maybe it's 50 trillion, maybe it's 40 trillion, maybe it's 30 trillion. It's going to get some portion of that gradually. Maybe it gets more and the fiat system goes down to 375. But this becomes an emerging asset where people view it as offsetting the losses that are happening over there in a much more controlled world. So I know people want to, everyone who has a brain wants to extrapolate because of anxiety over how this is going to end badly. Yeah. I would be right now, if someone said to me, Hey, um, and this does go on. So I'm doing this <laughs> right now. If you put 70% of your money into the risk-free rate and you're receiving 5% say a year. Yeah. And now you've got 30% left and you put 15 in a comp in the stock market. And then you put 15 into crypto into Bitcoin, I think over the next 20 years, you're going to get a significant return. And unlike before, where people were worried about crypto, there is no other, there's there's been alternatives to crypto for the last 10 years. The stock market went up 15% a year since the financial crisis. So that's a great return. And if you had the luxury of investing in startup, you know, in VC, you got even better returns. You've made money in credit until 2020. So people had other choices. I think the reason crypto and the fiat world is going to take off, like I said, I think the banking system is showing that people don't trust the banking system the way they did. And that's why the deposits are leaving because there's a better alternative. I didn't even get into the fact that the other problem the banks have, you remember how that held to maturity losses on the bonds? There are uh, accounting the, gimmicks. <laughs> the the So so people hear it, the, there's a bucket in the bank's balance sheets that was created after the great financial crisis where they don't have to mark them to market. So they can mark them at par. Yeah. Well, when the rates go up as fast as they did, then these things get marked down to 70 cents on the dollar. That was $620 billion in held to maturity losses in the banks at the end of last year. Well, bonds are down again this year. So there's yeah. more losses from the bond side. But then there's another thing, the commercial real estate market, you're not too far from San Francisco. The this marks that are being hit there, yeah. I mean, are horrible. So you've got a lot of losses on the commercial real estate. The banks are not going to go under because the Fed won't let it. But gradually, the deposits are going to continue to leave the banking system because there will be another SVB at some point, and then there'll be another, and then there'll be another, and they'll just keep being taken over. And I think each time one happens, 
I really do believe the, the Bitcoin will be doing well. And I think the US economy is fine. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's going to collapse. But I do think we're going to slow down in growth and we might even see some job losses, but nothing like we saw in the past because we've kind of eliminated that side of the market through demographics and through the Fed's tools. So I would take it to people that they should be moving more money into crypto and moving more money into the Fed fund, into the money market accounts. Yeah. That will reduce the S&P and the bond market gradually over time. Interesting. Kind of talking like an extreme barbell strategy of like, you know, <laughs> one year treasury bills and uh, going long crypto for 30 years. Yeah. And it'll take a while for people to get to 15%. But like this year, the S&P 500 as of Friday was up 15% year to date. The NASDAQ was up 40%. Bitcoin was up 105 yeah, uh, it's just going to take a few more years where the stock market doesn't go higher because the stock market, even with the rally we've seen this year, it's unchanged over the last 30 months in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I, I think gradually people are going to start to realize when Bitcoin gets above 50,000 and, and the ETF is launched, that's when I think people are going to start to be questioning whether they should be investing in it. And I think next year, because of the election uh, I think it's going to be a year that is kind of the year. That's why I wrote the Bitcoin moment, because I think it is starting right now because of AI and because of uh, the banking system. Okay, interesting. Um, so thematically for your guys' business, where does that leave you? You know, look into the future, uh, obviously AI, Bitcoin. What, what, are your, what are the themes you're talking about with clients that are interesting? So the good thing for us, hopefully, so we run market neutral, which means we have equal dollars on the long side and equal dollars on the short side. Yep. What we care about is a massive dispersion between winners and losers. For the last 30 years, every single time there's been a chance for companies to go out of business, the government has come in and bailed them out. Um so that's what a recession is. Everyone talks about recessions. I, I mean, I literally say to people, it's an old man term. It means nothing to me whatsoever. We haven't had a real recession uh, except for an event during my entire career. I don't count the pandemic because I, I don't count a sh yeah. an orchestrated shutdown. But there's been three recessions since I joined Morgan Stanley in 1992. Um, just three. And so when, when you or sorry, there's been three, uh, two since I joined one in 2001, 2002, and the other one, obviously, in the great financial crisis, there was one in 1990, just before I joined. So if people want to go through this and say, well, how do we even have why don't you think there can be recessions? Everything changed in the world in 2007. In 2007, the iPhone started and we started getting a break in the need to have debt to grow a business. And this is something that people have to think about. If you wanted to run a company like Exxon to go drill oil, you had to borrow a lot of money to go into the ground to go build it, and you could scale your business. So debt allowed you to scale your business. The mega cap tech companies who are 25% of the S&P 500, they took no debt to grow their business. They scaled yeah. their business with no debt. So that's the first layer of a business. The second layer of growing a business for scale is human beings. That's not going to happen the way that it did in the past because we now have artificial intelligence to keep the employee levels down at a whole level. So when people worry about artificial intelligence replacing workers, the thing they should be thinking about is in the fiat system to run a business, you can't compete with companies that are starting today 
because they're going to have an easier transition in the AI world. So what I've yeah. said is the, the government's not going to bail out businesses. So over the next five years, I fully expect there to be more bankruptcies in this country. And this year is running close to a record bankruptcy year, believe it or not. But it's also a record or close to a record year for business formations. There's a lot of startups happening. And the reason the bankruptcies are going to go much faster is because we have rates at five and a half percent. So everyone that had borrowed money before, they borrowed it at some level way under 5%. Yeah. The rents haven't come down quickly enough, even in the cities where this stuff is going because it's very slow. Wages have gone higher. Input costs have gone higher. You're going to lose a tremendous amount of companies, but those bankruptcies are being recycled into new businesses that are going to use artificial intelligence. And so you're going to have a big transition. And for our business, that means that we can finally short companies uh, that will probably go to zero and we can pick the winners who are going to survive. So it's actually for a long, short market neutral strategy that's very diversified. It's actually a pretty good environment for us as long as the government okay. doesn't come in and bail out all these companies again, which I don't think they will. Yeah. So who uh, who do you hate right now? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you don't Company? have to that. <laughs> yeah. Who are you taking a billion dollar bet against? Um, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, you, you, can, you can go through it and find companies that have a lot of debt coming up where their revenues are not growing and they haven't spent any money on technology. And I'd say that's kind of the theme we're looking for. Yeah, sure. Have you hired technology people? Are you trying to play catch up with AI? Uh, do Have you used the credit markets to sustain your business? Yeah. And what's your revenue situation going to look like going forward in a world where top line revenue is coming down? Uh, I There's a lot of companies that are going to be gone a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So you've got this AI theme. How does the consumer fit into all of this? So I keep seeing stuff about, you know, the US consumer being potentially tapped out, credit card debts at an all-time high, you know, rates are high, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people can't buy houses, people can't afford rent. I kind of feel like we live in this bifurcated world, right? Where like some people are doing really well. A lot of people are not, but the average generally is positive. How, where does the consumer fit in? Yeah, so, I mean, you 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 answered part of what I was going to say. Whenever anyone says the consumer, it depends who you're talking about. I mean, Jeff Bezos is not suffering at all, and, yeah. and the stock markets. Yeah. I mean. I, I I don't know how to say this to people, but the the, the U.S. economy is about twenty five trillion dollars. Over the last four years, the total value of the real estate market for residential, so what people own, households own, is up twelve mil twelve trillion dollars, half of the GDP number. The reason that's important is debt servicing for people that own houses in this country is the lowest it's ever been yeah. because they've got rates locked in at three and change percent. So the bottom decile, bottom quintile in the, in the country is starting to suffer more and more. We're seeing delinquencies go higher on that stuff. And you'll read a lot of, you know, X tweets going out and you know sensationalist economists and strategists well this is the way they all start you start seeing the the bottom end of the economy go on uh lose uh not be able to pay their debt and then they start running into trouble and there's nothing that they can do the unemployment rate is 3.9 percent 
they're paying you know fifteen dollars in New York City and in Maine, where I spend a lot of time, to work in Walgreens or Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I've never seen a scenario where I've seen more help wanted signs again for the bottom decile and the bottom quintile. While the people who seem to be suffering a little bit more, believe it or not, are the people at the banks and the people in the hedge fund world, because it's getting harder and harder to make money the way that it was. Silicon Valley is not doing well right now. We're getting a little bit of a change. But the overall, the U.S. consumer has had a tremendous amount of net worth go higher, and so they're fine. You've got unemployment rate at low levels. Now, that may change, but like I said with the delinquencies, those dollars are really small because when you have a Gini coefficient, meaning the, the, you know, the, the change in the country where the wealthier have been getting wealthier and the poorer have been getting poorer, well, that means the share of the bottom part of the economy as a percentage of the overall economy is getting smaller and smaller by definition. So as long as they can find labor, and trust me, they can find jobs. Right now, the job creation is happening in three parts of the United States, and that's it right now. So we've finally entered a period where we're not creating many jobs. Healthcare, any, anyone who wants to go get a nursing degree can get a job immediately. We don't have enough people. So the education and healthcare services side are still creating 75 to 100,000 jobs per month. Leisure and hospitality. We've got a demographic where the baby boomers are traveling more. Entertainment has become big. They're going to be traveling for the rest of their lives, and they're probably going to live healthier lives because of things like Ozempic and all kinds of more drug discoveries which are coming out, allowing people to travel more. So leisure and hospitality and then government. And so as long as we have those areas of the economy that are still enabling people to have jobs, I just the U.S. consumer isn't going to be great, but it'll be fine. They'll still be chugging along at two and a half to three and a half percent based on the net worth they have. So unless the stock market falls significantly, which I don't think is going to happen unless we have a recession, which I don't think is going to happen because I don't think the Fed's going to allow it. We're just kind of stuck here muddling along. Interesting. I suppose I'll take that as like a positive spin. <laughs> like, well, that's one of the reasons why I like saying it because everyone's yeah. like, well, you're an optimist. I'm like, I'm actually not an optimist. I think the situation in the cities is going to remain horrible. So for those of you who live in, you know, Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, you're still going to have the crime. You're still going to have the, the homeless situation. Um, you've got, you know, you've got a situation where these these cities don't have any money. So there's a lot of things going on which are not typical, which say there's no way we're going to have some kind of a renaissance period here. Yeah, It's just that it's not horrible. It's going to go through about a 10-year period where it needs to kind of be restructured. And AI is going to be a very important part of that. So it sounds like AI is your bright spot on the horizon here. Um, that maybe let's, let's wrap up with the next like uh, 10 minutes here on that. What... Uh, Outside of, I guess, high-level productivity gains, efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, what is optimistic to you about AI just like across the board? Yeah, I, I don't think people fully realize how much AI has already impacted their lives. <laughs> we're we're talking about you know machine learning being a part of our lives really for a lot longer than the last decade. But once we got to a point with transformers, AI really started to take off in 2018. That's also, you know, just after the cloud started to go through. So all of a sudden we had this ability to do tons of computations and really speed up things. Um, the best example I can give to people, you know, regard we had a pandemic. We had never had a vaccine go from needing one to getting it in less than four years in the history of mankind. 
So people don't realize this, and if they haven't read the story, Dave Johnson is the chief AI officer at Moderna. So they got in January uh, the sequence genome from China, like everyone else did around the globe, in January. Two days later, due to AI, Moderna yeah. had never done anything with viruses. They had a blueprint for the vaccine two days later. That doesn't yeah. happen without artificial intelligence. Yeah, I could name a tremendous amount of wonky things that uh, AI is doing every single day. But the main point it's going to help us on is living longer. It's the main part. Ozempic yeah. is an AI drug discovery. It doesn't exist or it doesn't exist in the amount of time that it took. And it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a miracle drug. And despite what people kind of go through it, I don't take any pharmaceuticals whatsoever, legal or illegal. Um, I'm health <laughs> conscious and I'm very focused on longevity. It's really strange but, for a Wall Street guy. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm very calm. I, I meditate 45 minutes a day in two separate tranches. So that's my, that's my, uh, that's my world of, uh, of enjoying things in the quiet. There you uh, go. But AI is having an impact on that. We're going to have impacts on bringing oil to the price of zero. Um, it'll happen through a combination of two things. One is we'll be more efficient on the demand side, which in my opinion is already happening. Uh, there's a waste of oil of at least 20 to 30% around the globe by just not knowing what we're doing, meaning our building, our heating, everything like that. It's an enormous amount that we just waste by not being smart. So once artificial intelligence Every day, it'll be more involved in us. And remember, we got fracking from increased technology. It wasn't AI. But think about what AI is doing right now with the oil industry in terms of their ability to get their break-evens even lower. They won't even report them when they announce their earnings, I assume for political reasons, because if we knew that they were able to, to um, get oil out of the ground and extract it in, in, in a much cheaper price... It would look bad, but the reality is every single day, they've invested tons of money on artificial intelligence for obvious reasons, but then there's also going to be more cures, uh, or, sorry, more um, solutions to problems that have existed for a long time, just like the vaccine. We will have energy solutions within batteries. We will have superconductors. We will have all kinds of things which are more likely to happen within the next five to 10 years because of AI. So people should think of it not as a bad thing. Your life is going to change far more drastically than what happened with the iPhone. And it's hard to even imagine 16 years ago that we didn't have smartphones. So you're going to think five to 10 years from now that all of the problems that you've ever thought of that human beings haven't been able to solve, we're going to be solving most of them because we have artificial intelligence. And people just have to accept that as a good thing. It will create more geopolitical fears because AI is something which will be used in a negative manner. And it will scare people because it is something similar to having nuclear war. You don't know who's who's as far ahead in AI. China's spending a lot of money on, on AI. They're also making tremendous advancements in quantum computing, which will take it to another level. So the amount of technological innovation, the exponential innovation we've seen over the last 12 years, it's going to accelerate significantly. And it's one of the reasons why I'm both optimistic, but people should expect it's going to be a little bit more scary too at times. Are we going to live forever? Are we there? Uh, we're a lot closer than we were. I mean, I could, I've done many podcasts on longevity. I'm, I'm hyper-focused on it as something. And I always tell people, you really want to stay in the best shape you can at a molecular level right now, because 
over the course of the next five years, you know, between all the the uh, the drug discovery is not as important to me, but the gene editing side is going to continue to go. So whether it's CRISPR, whether it's mRNA technologies, um, we're getting to the nano level of everything, including our bodies. And that just means we're starting to figure out the, the question that's the most important that is really what long people on longevity and living forever are focused on, which is viewing aging as a disease, which I, you know, I've, I've done my yeah. studies and I do believe that we allow ourselves to age much quicker than we otherwise would. In fact, this is a, a unsolicited, my favorite TV show by far, which had an impact on my longevity uh, theme is the show alone. Uh, have you seen it, Ben? I don't think I have actually. I don't think I've even heard of it. Um, let's see. It's it, it, so for if people really want to learn aging. So Alone is a show that's kind of in the inspiration of Survivor, but it's very different. Got it. Okay. They okay. take ten people. They give them. They all get ten items to bring, and they put them. I, so I have watched this actually. Yeah. yeah, where they go deep in like the Alaskan bush, and they've got their little set of things that they can use and that's it yeah yep and yeah. the only thing is they're all so they're all in different places and they get a go uh, a gopro yeah so they're videotaping themselves and whoever lasts the longest wins yeah you have to live off the land and they drop you off either at the arctic alaska somewhere cold they drop yeah. you off in august or september you yeah. get to build shelter for the first 30 days and all of a sudden the snow comes and you're fighting polar bears and stuff yeah. like that so yeah. the reason i bring it up is if you really want to learn about aging and you think about it in the context of these people age a lot even if they're there for 30 days they start going through what ozempic does which is they're in a starvation situation sure um, they're not getting the nutrients they need most yeah. of what we need to live the longest is to make sure we're getting most of the nutrients that will keep our body working functionally. And to do that, you have to have a very diverse diet. And the great thing about alone is they have about as yeah, they, they have the least diversity diet you've ever seen. If they're yeah. lucky, they're getting berries and they're eating, you know, seaweed and whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it's a great uh, thing to show aging. So <laughs> interesting. Have you read uh Max Lugavere's various book, uh, The Genius Foods or whatever? Yeah. Okay. It's in, I just started it. It's in the similar vein about diet and how it is, or I guess his point's going to be arguably the crux of your part of your longevity in terms of, you know, comorbidities like heart disease, Alzheimer's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And that all gets back into is aging a disease? Can you stop those things by slowing, not ending, but slowing the aging process? And the, the the thing that speeds up the aging process more is the lack of diversity in the diet, not getting magnesium, not getting copper. We don't focus on those things. So most people eat the same foods every day or they, yeah. I mean, I will tell you so far today, I've probably had 150 different plants. Um, now, most of those came in a smoothie, which I view as my multivitamin with a lot of dried organic powders of stuff from all over the world i was gonna say do you supplement with a lot of stuff yeah um well i don't consider like dried powders um that i put in a smoothie i just consider them to be no different than you know hey i want acai from brazil and rather than just have acai i want to have blueberries i want to have cranberries i want to have pomegranate i want to have everything it's really hard to get that into your diet so my smoothie um which has a bunch of probiotics and again these are i ferment my own food so i take this I, I don't want to say to an extreme, but Pretty I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, and I like it. I enjoy it. And once you start eating that way, 
I don't crave the garbage that's out there. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the earlier points in this book, I mean, and we can kind of wrap it here, but uh, just like the abundance of calories, like cheap, easy calories that are out there these days for people is just like hard to miss, right? You can get a Snickers bar and a hamburger and all of a sudden you're at a thousand plus, but they're not the best calories for you, right? And quality matters is the point. That's, so. And that's the that's the part that as people go through it, if you break it down, you need, as I'm older, I'm, I'm 57 very soon. Uh, I need a lot more protein than I did as a kid. I do three days of fairly important resistance training. I do yoga yeah. five days a week. I, I I walk for at least you know five miles every day, and usually closer to ten. I average about seven and a half. But to do those things, you have to be very efficient with. Okay, so how many calories am I going to eat? What's in there? Is it giving me my protein or my fiber? And that's the way that I go through things. You have to have a certain amount of fiber. You have to have a certain amount of protein. And if you do things like have a bagel, which has no protein and almost no fiber, you're using up maybe 400 calories of what you need for the day. So you're transferring fat in your body for this. And that's why alone is so important because they're thinking about every meal being important. And that's why they eat everything from whatever they catch. They're eating mice, they're eating squirrels, they're eating birds. All of a sudden they're fighting for food. And that's why if you watch that and then you think and compare it to how you eat, you start to get a difference as to maybe I should start paying attention more to what I eat and why I eat it. Oh, man. I mean, it resonates. It's a constant battle for me. But like this last weekend, I made Berea for the first time. I don't know if you're a Berea fan, but basically fried tacos. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Not bad <laughs> for you. <laughs> well, you need to have some things in your life that uh, yeah. that are not maybe the best thing for you, but they bring you some joy because one of the things about living long is the longer you're going to live, the happy you, you need to be happy. So yeah. you don't want to take everything out. You just want it to be a treat that you don't have it too often. Yeah, yeah. I have you all this stuff. Yeah. Trust me, normally people that talk like I do, they don't eat meat. Um, I am the opposite. I believe you can't live forever without having meat. It's just you have to be careful of how much you have. Mainly, I have seafood. I have a lot of fowl. I don't have a lot of red meat, but I'll tell you, if I had one meal still to this day, I have a burger every two weeks, and it's my favorite thing to make. I cook most of my food. Yeah. I give up a burger no matter what. So Yeah, there you go. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, All right. Well, cool. Uh, Appreciate it, Jordy. Welcome back anytime. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it here, too.